Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thanks for listening to the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. My guest today is Jeffrey D. Clausen, Laurie and Eric Sklut, Emerging Scholar in Jewish Studies and Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Elon University. We're discussing his book, Sharing the Burden, Rabbi Simcha Zissel Ziv and the Path of Musar, published in 2015 by Sunni Press as part of its series in Contemporary Jewish Thought. In this work, Professor Clausen provides perhaps the most exhaustive biography to date of one of the most influential figures in Musar, the Jewish discipline for development of moral character. Simcha Zissel, also known as the Altar of Kelm, was not only a leading moral theorist in 19th century European Judaism. He was an influential educator, an impassioned public speaker, and a widely read student of classical and continental philosophy. Professor Clausen provides a critical exploration of Simcha Zissel's writings, and of the virtue ethics contained therein. His book is a welcome and needed addition to the academic study of the Musar movement. Professor Clausen, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be in conversation with you. So uh, before we get into discussing uh, the book itself, tell me about uh, your academic uh, interests and how you came to be interested in Musar as as a subject for academic research. So I'll answer that question by going back a little while. I first became interested in the study of Jewish ethics when I was an undergraduate at Carleton College in Minnesota, and where I studied with Lewis Newman, who is a leading scholar of the history and theory of Jewish ethics. And the experience of studying um, with a scholar of Jewish ethics first inspired me to be more interested in Jewish studies and to think critically about Jewish thought and Jewish ethics. And in the course of my studies as an undergraduate, I first became really interested in questions about ways in which identities and religious practices shaped people's character and might make them into particular kinds of people. And that's an interest that really stuck with me um, from the beginning Mm -hmm. and is really at the core of this book. So when, when I was an undergraduate, I was interested in thinking about this in terms of Jewish practice. I was also somewhat interested academically in Buddhist practices, especially in how disciplines of meditation might shape practitioners. Mm-hmm. And I was also interested in ancient Greek philosophy. I was a classics major as an undergraduate with a particular interest in Plato. And I mentioned those early intellectual interests because, because all of these kinds of academic interests played, out, played a role in the topic that I eventually came to focus my doctoral research on some years later, Rabbi Simchazosolziv, the figure um, who's now the, who's the subject of this book. He wrote a good deal about these very kinds of questions. He wrote about how Jewish practice might shape Jews into particular kinds of people with particular kinds of virtues. He wrote about how disciplines of meditation might shape practitioners. And he wrote a surprising amount about ancient Greek philosophy, which is one of the themes that I bring out in my book. So it sounds almost as if... uh your spiritual and intellectual interests aligned with his. Was was his work the influence on you, or did you discover him as your interests developed? As both, really uh-huh. both. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I discovered 
I first discovered Simchus Holziv um, and the movement that he was a part of, the Musar movement. Um, I discovered that world when I was a student at the Jewish Theological Seminary, JTS. Mm -hmm. I'm a student in the JTS Rabbinical School and Graduate School. Mm -hmm. And um, in my second year there, I had the privilege of studying with Rabbi Ira Stone, a constructive Jewish theologian, who's also a student of Emmanuel Levinas and also of the Musar movement. Um, I had the opportunity opportunity to take a seminar with um, with Ira Stone, focused entirely on the Musar movement. I was captivated by Sivkazasolziv, by the Kelm School of Musar that he founded. Um, and as I went on to do a PhD in Jewish thought at JTS, I eventually ended up focusing on him for my dissertation, and then this book emerged out of that dissertation research. And I, I have both... Um, my interests have been shaped by that encounter, and for sure... Um, that encounter my interests as well. So, for the, and for those who may not be as familiar with the Musar movement uh, as you are, um, can you give us a brief history of it uh, and standing on one foot, as it were, and of Rabbi uh, Simcha Zisselziv's role in it? Yes. So, the Musar movement was an Orthodox movement in Lithuania in the middle of the 19th century, um, and it emerged under the leadership of Simcha Zissel's teacher, Rabbi Israel Salanter, um, who was focused on the goal of urging Jews to engage in Musar, to bring, to bring Musar, moral discipline, um, to their lives, to their souls. And uh, his effort was in part a reaction against more liberalizing trends in the Jewish world, a reaction against the Haskalah, um, the Jewish Enlightenment, um, interested in cultivating a deep kind of piety that would passionately defend the kind of traditionalist values that Salanter saw as at the core um, of Jewish life. At the same time, though, it was also... He received some pushback from from traditional orthodoxy, didn't he? Didn't this movement face some opposition? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And at the same time that it, um, it was a movement that sought to um, sort of shore up the defenses of traditionalist orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. It was also, I think, a kind of reaction against um, traditional rabbinic orthodox culture in Lithuania, um, especially a reaction against um, the sort of Talmud study-focused culture that that had real cultural influence in that world. And part of Solanter's effort was to focus on virtue and the role of emotions in the moral life, um, and to, to focus on cultivating virtues, fear of God, reverence for God, equanimity, humility, honesty, generosity, loving kindness, um, virtues that in, um, in the thought of many traditionalist Lithuanian rabbinic thinkers um, would come naturally to Torah scholars without tremendous amounts of work. Salanter's insistence was that um, it would take a lot of work to develop such qualities, that developing such qualities is at the core of what he saw God as expecting human beings to do, um, and that developing those kinds of qualities, developing those virtues would take a lot of work, would take not just um, studying Talmud, but would take um, efforts of meditation and visualization and chanting, emotionally charged chanting and studying Musar literature, literature focused on the development of character, on moral virtues, um, and making real efforts to cultivate um, empathy, making efforts to perform deeds of loving kindness, 
and Salanter's contention, and this um, shows up as well in his senior student, Simchus Solziv, the subject of my book, um, thought that tremendous work was required in order to work on moral character. It seems that part of what um, made Simcha Zissel uh, a unique character, not only um, in the Musar movement of his day, but in but in Orthodox Judaism of the time, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that he was very well read in the Western philosophical tradition, and he taught this as part of a general studies curriculum in his in his Talmud Torah and Kelm. Uh, what was the genesis of the introduction of general studies? What led him to want to do this? And how controversial was this innovation? Yeah, so this was certainly very controversial, and um, this helped to make Simcha Zissel something of an outlier within the Musar movement and really opposed by many other figures within the Musar movement. Um, so other figures in the Musar movement, like other figures in traditionalist Lithuanian orthodoxy were staunchly opposed to the introduction of general studies um, in Jewish educational institutions. Um, so things like the study of um, the study of mathematics, the study of Russian language, um, even even uh, subjects like that were staunchly opposed by traditionalists. And um, the efforts of the, the Haskalah in the Russian Empire of um, leaders of the Haskalah were precisely to introduce subjects like that. By and large, the Musar movement resisted and was set on resisting um, th- that kind of curriculum. Uh, and so Simcha Zissel, in founding an institution that did include such subjects, that did include the teaching of math and Russian language, and then through Russian, um, the study of world history and literature, um, and uh, eventually German language mm-hmm. as well, um, that was really deeply controversial. This meant that um, it meant that non-Jewish Christian teachers were visiting uh, the school that he founded every afternoon to spend three hours uh, teaching these sorts of subjects, and um, which of course was unheard of in a traditional say yeshiva. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, um, and uh, many of many of the m- much of the opposition. Um, to Simcha Zissel's efforts, even within his own movement, uh, were because of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he seemed to have a sense that, um, on the one hand, that engaging in such studies would be useful um, and would be economically useful, and he, more than other Musar movement figures, had a sense that engaging in um, in commerce and seeking to learn trades would be a, a valuable activity for Jews in the Russian Empire in the late 19th century. Um, and uh, he may have had political motivations as well, um, sort of wanting to train leaders who would be able to engage in um, good relations with the Russian government. Um, but he also, seems, he also seems to have had a real sense that um, this kind of study would have some kind of moral benefits. So, um, and that was yeah. one thing I wanted to ask you about. What, uh, again, um, asking about the the influence of the Western tradition on him. What lessons on moral excellence did uh, Simcha Zissel derive from the Western philosophical tradition and not, say, from uh, Jewish canon and Jewish text? And how did he square uh, what he derived from the Western tradition with traditional Torah-based learning? 
Yeah, so I actually don't think that he took up anything that was um, that was radically different from anything that, uh, or he didn't take up anything that strikes me as deeply contrary to um, things that he could have learned from more traditional Jewish sources. Um, he did so. The, the motivation um, for having general studies at all um, seems to have been in part out of a sense. So the, the motivation beyond the economic and political kinds of reasons that I, I mentioned mm-hmm. um, seems to seem to have been especially a sense that um, engaging with ones would serve the needs of people around you, understanding people around you, um, understanding one's general culture has real um, has real value, not necessarily in and of itself as um, as offering real content, but that one has a moral obligation to be involved in um, one's broader civilization. There's a lot. Um, I I think that Simchas was inspired in part by Samson Raphael Hirsch in the world of German neo orthodoxy, um, and had a similar sense of sort of a cultured individual who should have some awareness, although on a lower level than was encouraged in um, neo orthodoxy in Germany, should have some awareness of the broader society. Mm-hmm. There are truths also that. Um, that Simchasisol describes himself as arriving at, thanks to his um, his study of Aristotle, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, um, when he explains the concept of practical wisdom, for example, the idea um, that one should develop a virtue of being able to weigh advantages and disadvantages of any given path of action, um, that's an example of a place where he does. He, he refers his readers to sort of the best source to study this is um, is Aristotle's ethics. Interesting. And maybe that's an example of something that he could have less easily found in a classical Jewish source. Um, yeah, he also, uh, although I'm not, I didn't see this in the book, but it, a lot of um, what you describe of his uh, moral and ethical orientation sounds very stoic in terms of a constant yeah. moral vigilance, uh, an emphasis on lasting versus fleeting pleasures, and in fact, of foregoing pleasure for the sake of morality. Were the Stoics an influence on him as well? Um, not in any direct sense. Um, so he, his, his, and his studies of, his studies of uh, Western philosophy or ancient Greek philosophy, um, I don't think were all that extensive. Um, so he, he clearly read Aristotle's Ethics mm-hmm. um, and had a copy of the Hebrew edition um, with a commentary by uh, by a figure from the Haskalah. Um, he clearly had that volume. Um, I don't think he had all that all that much else um, from sort of the world of Western philosophy. Okay. He does have Stoic aspects to him, um, mm-hmm. and I especially noticed that in in his focus on um, on thinking that. Virtue is really what provides happiness, regardless of your material circumstances. As long as you have virtue, um, that that leaves you in a place of um, that leaves you in the place where you should be. Interesting, because um, one thing that that struck me is um, not necessarily contradictory in his, in his theology and his ethics, but one place that where there was a potential tension was on the one hand his belief that the Torah, you know, represented the epitome of rationality. And on the other hand, his belief that contemplation of punishment after death was the best incentive for upright moral behavior. So could you talk about whether and to what extent there was a tension between his theology and the influence of philosophy and, say, and, and give us a, a sense of how 
it differed from traditional, say, uh, Lithuanian orthodoxy. Yeah, um, well, that's a great example of um, of the conflict that I think he he definitely felt. Um, so, Simplicio stresses the idea that um, that virtue should be its own reward, um, and that one should not be motivated by fears of otherworldly punishments or promises of otherworldly rewards. Um, and it's clear that sort of within his um, within his philosophical vision that that's his ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, and compared to Israel Salanter, compared to his teacher, um, he is much more focused on that ideal. Israel Salanter has more um, more fire and brimstone sorts of teachings, um, more than some Chazosel. He ha- uh, Salanter had um, a real emphasis on the afterlife, but that that is also still there in some Chazosel. It's just that it's um, its intention with this focus on or its intention with his acknowledgement that sort of ultimately that should not be one's motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I think that Simcoe also saw um, precisely because he saw human nature as so fragile, much more also than Aristotle did, mm-hmm. let's say, um, because he sees human nature as so fragile and he sees human beings as so easily swayed by their desires. Um, precisely because of that, I think he saw it as essential to appeal to people's self-interest um, and to threaten people with um, with fears of what might happen to them were they not to behave with moral uprightness uh-huh. in their lifetime. Um, so, and and he, does, he, he does really view that as an important kind of Musar activity to focus on what it would be like to be punished for, um, for your misdeeds. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even as I think he knows that that's not the ideal. He thinks that human beings need that kind of uh, meditation. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, there's also, a, um, it seems to me, uh, an emphasis uh, that you don't see in in traditional uh, Jewish praxis on on contemplative uh, practice. Uh, he he is influenced, it seems, by uh, the early uh, texts of Musar, like Baya ibn Pakuda and his uh, outlining of the problem of pizur ha-nefesh, the distraction or scattering of the soul. And he prescribes, I think, contemplative exercises as a way of stripping away materiality and developing equanimity. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so those kinds of exercises are really um, also really central to Simchazisl's, uh system. So he... Um, he recommends practices like uh, holding on to just one thought and just keeping that one thought in mind and concentrating on that. Um, or especially, that shows up especially in his reflections on prayer um, and the necessity of engaging in prayer at a slow pace, davening slowly, um, taking each word for itself and pausing. Mm-hmm letting oneself focus and training one's mind, um, training one's mind in that kind of way, or when sitting in the study hall to train one's mind um, to just focus on what one is doing um, and never to look at the window, that kind of, that kind of practice okay. as well. Um, so, yeah, there's, um, there are lots of practices like that that he imagines. There are, there are particular kinds of meditations that he instructs his um his students to engage in. Um, 
but sometimes they sometimes sometimes they're about not being distracted. Um, some meditations are about being distracted in a certain kind of way, in this or being um, interrupted in a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. And this is one thing that I do appreciate um, in Simchasul's teachings. Um, so when he when he asks his students to model themselves on Abraham, the patriarch sitting at his tent and interrupting his own meditative activity um, in order to host the wayfarers who are um, passing by in order to feed them. Um, that's a kind of meditation that he asks his students to engage in where he asks them to precisely be willing to interrupt themselves um, at times of need for people in need. And he actually, he actually asks the students to um, imagine that you, that you, my student, are sitting with the Vilna Gaon, with the, the greatest um, the greatest teacher, the greatest um, rabbi of our era, of the modern era, mm-hmm. and that you're immersed in study with the Vilna Gaon is the most amazing experience you could possibly have of study, right? That's That would be total bliss. Mm-hmm. And you should imagine what it's like to turn aside from that study because wayfarers have come by your tent and they're in need of being fed. That's really interesting. And it's interesting, too, because he also depicts uh, or, or seems to consider Abraham as chief of the philosophers, right? As part right. of the as part of the theme of Torah being the epitome of rationality, he's influenced by Maimonides' view of the the superb quality of Abraham's rationality and of Abraham as chief of the philosophers. So, what led him to see Abraham that way, and how did that influence the curriculum at the Talmud Torah? Yeah. Um so his vision of Abraham, I think, is is really indebted to Maimonides, um, and he sees himself as um, as following Maimonides in viewing Abraham as a philosophic figure par excellence. Um, at the same time, um, so Abraham was able to sort of reach the um, to sort of discover the Torah for himself, as it were, yeah. um, with any external aids. Um, Simchasul did not think that his students in his day or himself um, were at a level where it was at all possible to do that. And so in contrast to Abraham, who arrived by way of reason um, at profound truths about God, about human nature, about um, what it is to be in this world, um, in contrast to that, he did think that his students um, could, you know, could not live by philosophy alone mm-hmm. um, and um, and needed what Abraham didn't need, which is uh, the revelation at Sinai, which is immersion in truths that were learned by Moses and the people of Israel at a particular moment in history when God revealed um, what some physical sees as the ultimate truth of the Torah to them. Interesting. How uh, So it seems to me that there's, and, and your book makes clear that there is, uh, a considerable tension between not only the study of philosophy, and the study of Talmud, but between uh, Aristotelian virtue ethics and Talmudic dialectics. So it seems to me that uh, Simcha Zissel is creating an enormous tension, not only in the wider Orthodox community because of his innovations, but he may be creating uh, significant tensions in the minds of his students because sometimes these, these methods of instruction and thought are at odds with each other. So the, my question has uh, really two parts. The, the the second part, which I'll ask first, is about how this played in the wider Orthodox community. But the first and, and more significant question, I think, is how it 
how these tensions surfaced with his students. Did he face internal dissension um, amongst his students about his approach? So he he certainly did um, in various kinds of ways. On the question of philosophy, and I I should emphasize that um, philosophy was not central to the curriculum of the Talmud Torah. Mm -hmm. Um, There there was this time for general studies, but that wasn't a time for the in-depth study of uh, philosophy. That was... I think often pretty basic, um, you know, Russian language skills and basic math skills, um, not necessarily on the highest level. He did, he did for sure. I think um, you know, when he spoke every evening when he delivered his um, his Musser talk that he delivered uh, every day, um, he did invoke philosophers. Um, but I don't want to give the impression that that was sort of that that central to his mm-hmm. to his teaching. Okay. Even as I think it's a striking and interesting. Um, piece of it, and it it did. I mean, that did spark dissension. Um, his most one of his most famous students, uh, Nathan Svi Finkel, uh, who was a student of his and then became uh, a spiritual supervisor within his yeshiva, um, a mashgiach. Um, Finkel then uh, left behind the world of Kelm, left behind the world, uh, left behind the institution that Simchas Zissel had founded to start his own yeshiva. The Slavodka Yeshiva, mm-hmm. um, just a bit uh, further away in, in Lithuania, and um, and Finkel, although he was not um, totally upfront about this in his writings, he um, he confided to to others that he was dismayed by these efforts to mix in um, true Torah with non-Jewish teachings. Um, and that may have been especially about the curricular choice to devote three hours every day to general studies. Um, it may have also been about this um, reflex that his teacher had to, you know, regularly appeal to Aristotle or Plato or Socrates as well. Um, so Finkel is a good example of a Muslim movement figure who wanted to restore the study of Musar um, to something pure and free from uh, from the influence of non-Jewish Sources. Simchas Yisrael himself, though, also, whenever he praises Aristotle, he really almost always pivots and points out something that uh, you know, points to Aristotle's weakness in some on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, that Aristotle was too focused on self-love, for example, or that Aristotle um, did pretty well in this. You know, it's worth looking at uh, the ethics for this, but Aristotle did not have access to the perfect rational Torah that was revealed at Sinai. Um, And so you who are sitting here in the study hall, you have access to truths that Aristotle could never have, could never have known because you are heirs to this, um, the oral tradition that goes back to Sinai. Interesting. Uh, What in your estimation has been the lasting influence of Simcha Zissel? not only in terms of um, towering students of his own, like Rav Finkel, whom you just mentioned, or Eliyahu Dessler, who was a student of his, mm-hmm. but how is his work, how are his innovations uh, still manifesting, if at all, in, in Jewish practice today? Yeah. Um, so part of, part of the lasting influence of Simcha Zissel is the kind of model of practice that he offers, um, the model that he developed at his yeshiva of um, slowly 
working one's way through different sorts of character traits. Um, taking a week or taking a month to focus on honesty and then taking the next, let's say, month to focus on kindness and the next month to focus on gratitude and so on. And that kind of model mm-hmm. um, did did take off within the Musar movement and it continues to be um, to be seen in uh, manifestations of Musar practice today um, among among various sorts of Jews who, who have taken up Musar practice. Um, much of that goes back to Simcha Zissel's kind of model. Mm-hmm. Um, taking time to focus on different character traits and then um, part of the model that Simcha Zissel developed was a model of uh, students coming together to discuss their experience with to, to discuss their experience with the particular trait during the past month um, and to spend some time engaged in meditation together in study and conversation in chanting and in taking on other kinds of exercises or assignments that would be um, appropriate for that particular character trait. I, I do think that some physicals focus on loving kindness and generosity um, has also had some real, um, some real effect. You see that in, um, in students, including uh, Eliyahu Dessler, who you mentioned, um, who also places a real emphasis on um, a kind of love that's focused on generosity. Mm-hmm. So those are those are some of the some of the ways in which he's been deeply influential. So, in in reading the book, in looking at your bibliography, uh, and in and in trying to find uh, other uh, academic texts on the study and history of Musar, it doesn't seem like Certainly, academic works have been written. There have been books written, especially about uh, Israel Salanter, the, the modern, the founder of the modern Musar movement. But it, it, it doesn't. It didn't look to me as though there have been uh, a great deal of academic texts on the history or influence or trajectory of the Musar movement. If is this the case, and and what academic works did influence you or direct you in this work? There have been. There were two uh, major works written on Salanter that. Um, that did help to get me interested in the subject here and did help to direct me. Um, one of which is by Emmanuel Eckes on Rabbi Israel Salanter and the Musar movement. Mm-hmm. Um, second of which is by Hillel Goldberg, um, which came out of a, a dissertation at Brandeis. Um, and a third book that really does, or a third um, dissertation that really does uh, trace the influence of the Musar movement that really shaped me a lot um, is uh, Tamar Rost, um, the Israeli philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote her dissertation on a range of Musar movement figures, um, including Salanter and including Simcha Sissel, um, and also including a number of other uh, figures from uh, the following generations. Um, and she she inspired me in large part, especially her effort was to bring these figures into um, to subject them to some philosophical analysis. Uh-huh. Um, and that that really inspired me in thinking that it was possible to think about these figures um, who were not philosophers in any conventional sense, who were um, totally unsystematic in their writings, um, but whom I sensed there was something um, philosophical there. And uh, Tamar Ross uh, really inspired me to take that seriously, to take pos- to take seriously the possibility um, that philosophical ideas could be located within this kind of discourse. And finally, uh, tell us what uh, projects you're working on now and what you hope to be focusing on in upcoming works of yours. So I've continued on in my scholarship with the theme of Musar, um, but I'm now writing about Musar much more broadly than just as a phenomenon 
confined to the Musar movement. So I'm now working on a volume which is titled Modern Musar, Contested Virtues in Jewish Thought. Um, and that's a volume in which I'm thinking about Musar literature broadly. Musar literature is literature that describes, that explains virtues. Um, and I'm looking at diverse ways in which various virtues have been described and explained by diverse modern Jews. So there, there is, there is virtue centered literature that's been produced by modern Jews. Um, certainly not just within the Musar movement, which took this legacy especially seriously, but within nearly every Jewish movement um, and within nearly every modern Jewish framework imaginable. And the goal of this project is to collect different examples of modern Musar literature um, that really show disagreements and tensions and debates in how different Jews think about common virtues. Um, the book is organized around a series of virtues that are widely praised, but, they're, but are praised in very different ways by different Jews. So virtues like compassion and gratitude and humility and honesty and self-control. I want readers to be able to see that Jews have met radically different things when they encourage such virtues. And looking at Musar, looking at virtues, is a great way to understand the vast diversity of modern Jewish ethics. Uh, that sounds uh, that like sounds something like that a, I will uh, greatly look forward to reading, and I hope you'll, you'll let us know when it uh, when it's available in print. Um, we're out of time. I want to thank you for talking about this fascinating book uh, on Simcha Zisolziv, uh, who is a fascinating character in the history of uh, Jewish philosophy and practice. My guest today has been Jeffrey D. Clausen, Laurie and Eric Sklut, Emerging Scholar in Jewish Studies and Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Elon University, and we've been discussing his book, Sharing the Burden, Rabbi Simcha Zisselziv and the Path of Musar, published in 2015 by Sunni Press. Professor Clausen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much.